hello, Judge Movoids. It's Judge Movie with me, Ben Flanagan. And Anisha Izume, hi. Hey, and we are back at the London Film Festival today for a wrap-up. It's been an interesting festival. It's been a lot of movies. I've seen like 30-odd films. Well done. Uh, yeah. Still got stamina, somehow. Let's see one last film today. I'm going to watch uh, Sisters Brothers. But I'm going to talk about all the other things we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you bearing up? Yeah, good. I think I am, I am starting to feel the festival fatigue as everyone keeps talking about it. I'm starting <laughs> to feel it more. But I'm still in good spirits. I've seen a lot of stuff, which has been great. Yeah. yeah. Um, been experiencing a lot of different cinemas as well, which is nice. Absolutely. I've probably seen more Chinese films in the last like few weeks than in the last year. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, so. great. So that is good. So we, what we're going to do is we're going to answer some of the questions that we posed two episodes ago. If you, you haven't heard those questions, you can go back. To part one of the London Film Festival three-part series. <laughs> and then uh, we're going to go through and hand out some awards, judge movie official uh, medals of honour yeah. for, uh, for LFF 2018. Yeah. So the, two of the questions, full disclosure, we didn't actually get to answer. Uh, the first was this question of... Uh, Robert Redford's Nuclear War Charisma as touted in the uh, BFI Guide to LFF yeah uh, we were wondering can he really live up to that description for the, for the old man and the gun I praise um, yeah neither of us actually saw it no unfortunately but I did talk to a lot of people who did see it and generally people seem to have liked the movie um, but I asked them specifically about that phrase and I was getting a lot of strange looks back <laughs> when I asked that a lot of Nuclear War yeah, it's, it's, like, yeah. yeah. It's taller. So I don't know who wrote that. Sorry to, you know, call out the. I think it's a beautiful phrase. It's a, it is a great phrase, <laughs> but it maybe misplaced. Maybe. I don't know who. Look, find out about that. I think he might get us to a wars buzz. Do you think anyone did have nuclear war charisma in the? In the festival. It? Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. Some of the best performances, I think, definitely. You know, I was yeah. fixated on the screen. Um, definitely, yeah. <laughs> Um, you don't, you're not you're not wanting to give away your best performance is that what you're yeah I mean well the ladies and the favourite they're all great and stunning um, not just exactly but just like yeah you're just like fixated on them and like in awe um, I thought you said stunning like you're stunning <laughs> uh, you know the, the trio maybe on rewatch maybe on rewatch yeah <laughs> who do you stand hardest of the three of them of the three probably Rachel Vice. I've got a long history there you know watching the mummy as a child you want to be her and about a boy. Yep, she's great that. She's not going... What is it? What's the line? I don't know what you mean. She's not interested in you. She's only interested in me. In, in about a boy. I don't know the bit you mean. We'll, but, cut, we'll cut this bit. But Nicholas Holt was in the favourite. I wonder if they talked about oh, Hugh shit. Grant. Yeah. <laughs> they just chatted about <laughs> Hugh Grant the whole time. That was... That was um, Sorry, yeah, so <laughs> Nuclear What Charisma on display. Nicholas Cage and Mandy kids do. Not not the best performance of the festival. Okay, me, yeah. But, you know, Nuclear What. Yeah. Viola um, Davis and Widows. She's oh, she's, yeah. It's pretty Because her role is kind of underwritten. There's not a lot on the page for her, I, I felt. Okay. But, like, it's just Viola Davis, and that yeah. tells you all you need to know. Yeah. Yeah. Like, sometimes you watch, like, a Joan Crawford or, um, or a Stanwyck role, and, like, they do half the work just being there. I feel like Viola Davis is in that role. In I mean, I wouldn't... I just... Dispute your term underwritten, but yeah, maybe it's written for her and to give her that space to just, you know, exude the charisma. Maybe not underwritten, but like there's not a lot on the page. Yeah, not yeah, it's minimal. Yeah. It's great, yeah. 
uh, and the other question that we had was about Park Chan Wook's uh, Little Drama Girl. Yeah, what can you bring to television? Uh, I don't know. Say. I have no idea. Can't, can't tell you. You can catch when it's on TV. So some of the other questions we posed um, were the quality of the English accents from non-English actors. You know, they were going to be playing to an English audience. So how would how would they respond? How do you feel? Oh, so um, I think the big one there was probably the favourite, right? Yep. That's what we touted. I didn't get to see that film. Yep. So how were those English accents then? Um, Stone. So Emma Stone was good, yeah. She was consistent, which I think is really important. You can have, like, maybe an accent that's off, but if it's at least consistent, it's, you feel like that's the character in that movie. And she was consistent, she was good. It was kind of like, you know, a posher English accent because she's playing aristocracy. So, yeah, she did. She nailed it, I'd say. I think Daniel Kaluuya's uh, Chicago accent was really good, though. That was great, yeah. It was a yeah. different accent to what he didn't get out. It's yes. not just, I'm doing my American voice. Yeah, it's an it was different. Yeah. That was scary, yeah. Um, so I, that we should talk about uh, Steve McQueen and Widows. Yeah. It's already coming up a couple of times. <laughs> um, so do you think he successfully shifted into genre filmmaking? Yeah. I was, you know, tense throughout the whole film, but enjoying that tension. Um, yeah, I think he did a good job, you know, balancing the performances with the thrills and the... Yeah, it's good. It's good and scary. It is scary. I, I, I think it's a, it's a really well put together film. It's yeah. super enjoyable. Like Definitely one of the crowd pleases of the year, I'd say. Yeah. Um, I feel like some of the political stuff is a bit underbaked. I agree. It's kind of gestures towards things without really uh, saying much about them. I agree, yeah. So it brings in... So from the original story, I understand they brought in more racial elements to talk about that in terms of politics. The characters, but yeah, they're not really explored. I was left wanting more, really, about that theme. Yeah, for me, the, the Gillian Flynn of it all is the the drawback. I didn't like some of those twists. I found them a bit sort of um, not contrived, but just kind of lessen the seriousness of the whole thing. Okay. And it kind of made me realise what a campy movie the whole thing is. Like the Viola Davis performance, the dog, the Olivia. just all of it is yeah sorry Olivia the dog Olivia the dog um, you know there's literally a scene where like they're all taking to, to doing impressions of Viola and then uh, Viola just stood there out of nowhere in the background stroking her dog and it's just like and it's really enjoyable um, and I think the film sort of does embrace its campy aspects I think it does yeah I think I enjoyed the Gillian Finn twists more in this than I did in Gone Girl I think yeah it just fit it a bit better Okay. So I like that stuff. Yeah, you're right. The campiness is fun. The campiness is fun. Um, I mean, this is still like one of the one of the best movies yeah. of the year. Yeah. I, but it's there's just certain things that stop it from. Right. Do you think we're being unfair to say we ex- like we expect a bit more from Steve McQueen in some in something that is exploring issues of race? Yeah, I guess so. Or like at least something that wouldn't just kind of nod to it and then leave it at that mm-hmm. um, they are like they do feel like nods yeah um, you know like the infamous indie wire headline that said a uh, Black Lives Matter movie for the Me Too oh, era or whatever like it's it oh, it's wow. kind of is that though like it, it kind of gives yeah. you just enough to kind of put whatever you want onto it okay whatever kind of social thing you want to go for you, it kind of can just tick all the boxes I think okay yeah rather than really interrogating anything like for example I just saw uh, Bill Street could talk and there's this question of um, in it where the main character's been accused of, of rape and he's gone to prison for it and 
in and and so they're trying to fight to prove that he didn't do it. And in this sort of current, you know, post Brett Kavanaugh kind of era, if that felt a little bit odd or a little bit uh, uncomfortable, even yeah. though it's got its okay. whole other set of context to why that character is obviously completely different to okay. Kavanaugh, but. It, the film like thoroughly interrogates these ideas yeah. where Widows is just it is a thriller it's a Gillian Flynn movie so kind of, yes yeah okay it's like the definition of a four star film do you know what I mean? oh I don't know if I go that high oh I'd say the nods to those elements do put it down to a three for me they really put okay so another big question was uh, that of Melissa McCarthy do you think she's going to win her Oscar this year for can You Ever Forgive Me by Mariel Heller? No. No. Um, it didn't really blow me away as a performance. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's all right, yeah. It's kind of an interesting character, and she, like, hits all these different notes as this woman who's quite... just can't help being a bitch and pushing everyone away. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's fine, but it's not really a standout, and, yeah, when there are other performances this year that are kind of hitting so much... Yeah. No. Is she actually doing something different, or is it just Melissa McCarthy shtick in a non-funny role? I don't know. I wouldn't really call myself a Melissa McCarthy connoisseur of like you know her recent comedy hits, so I can really say it's, it's quite similar though. Yeah, a lot of her characters have this thing where they just keep pushing people away, yeah, and putting people down, and being yeah, abrasive. Yeah. So it is very similar, except this time she's wearing a wig and no makeup. See, if you want to win the Oscar, you need to get a prosthetic nose. That's the... A wig's not going to cut it anymore. You know? I think she might just get in there as being Melissa McCarthy. Like, get get the norm. That would be nice, yeah. Maybe yeah. she gets enough norms. And if she does something really great, then it will really yeah. happen. I, unfortunately, I think there's certain people that are like, will win a lead actor. And there's some people that will just win a supporting actor or something. Like, Willem Dafoe won't ever win lead actor. Mm-hmm he's a character actor so he will yeah. win supporting actor one day like I think it's the same for Miss McCarthy she'll win supporting actor if she ever does it's just okay. it's just the way it, way it works I don't is know. the way it is have there ever been character actors that have won lead surely okay. I have but I'm just trying to think of any it's certainly in recent years okay. you know like you think like Frances McDormand's like the closest thing but she's yeah. still Frances McDormand isn't she like yeah. Mark Rylance is your character actor? Sporting. Oh, we didn't win that lead? No, that was, um, what was that 2015? DiCaprio that year. Oh, yes. Yeah. So DiCaprio would never win Sporting, would he? Maybe in his old age. Yeah, mate, yeah, but that's the, yeah. the next evolution. Um, so, um, come back to the favourite, like Olivia Coleman's in there for Best Actress as well, isn't she? Definitely, so. yeah. She's really great in it yeah. but people have talked about how she's maybe a supporting character I think it is yeah so I think she won best actor at, I don't know was it a Venice, Venice. yeah yeah I wouldn't call it a lead performance no but she's really really great in it it's interesting that they're running there in lead when she could just sweep into supporting and win that right definitely like everyone loves Olivia Coleman like mm-hmm. this is clearly a really good version of her so yeah. why are they pushing her for lead do you think that's her wanting the lead or do there's someone else to play I just really have no idea I don't know why yeah. pushing that. it seems really odd um, but hey she'll lose to Gaga and we'll all be <laughs> we'll be 
richer for it. Um, so what do you think was the... We asked, asked you before about the place of documentary at London Film Festival. Um, have any of the documentaries that you've seen sort of answered that question or what people have said that that kind of uh, clarified its position? I think it's interesting to compare them to uh, the fire pits because a lot of the documentaries are often about creative figures and I think they maybe do do a better job this year. I found yeah, the documentaries do a better job of exploring the creative process and creative figures than the fictionalised narrative fire pits have been. Cool. Um, what documentaries okay. did you see? Um, so I watched... Um, I Love Me When I'm Dead, which is the story about Orson Wilde making The Other Side of the Wind, his long-lost movie, which will be coming out soon to Netflix. Yeah. It's finally finished. So it's the film about that, that film. And yeah, that was, that was a good film. What did you make of it? Yeah, I really like that as well. It's kind of a companion piece to the movie, Primer. Make me really want to see it. So. It did, yeah. yeah. It did a good job. It was, it was a very slick documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, another documentary I saw was Unsettling, which was um, an Israeli film about a young filmmaker who identifies as a leftist. He um, sets up a table, two chairs, to try and interview people in this Israeli settlement to discuss the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And that was really interesting. It sort of talked about the nature of the film, how it's going as a project. And I like that a lot. Did it unsettle you? I guess a little bit. It's interesting hearing people who are quite, you know, got that nationalist pride. Yeah. Um, and yeah, hearing normal people's views on a conflict was really interesting. Um, uh, and I like that because I did sort of think about the documentary format as a little playful, so that was probably a standout for me. Yeah, what do you think about documentaries? I, literally the only one I saw was um, The Love of Dead, so I can't really speak to it. Why do you think you saw so few documentaries at the festival? Um, because I think most of the big... I, I ended up catching up with a lot of uh, the sort of mainstream stuff that I've wanted to see from over the year. And this year, the bigger documentaries that played are ones I'm not interested in, like Morgan Neville's Won't You Be My Neighbour, I Don't Care About Mr. Rogers. Oh, yeah, okay. I Don't Care About John McEnroe. You know, I'm sure it's quite good, but sure. I kind of did just didn't have the time for it. Okay, so what put you off was the content rather yeah. than filmmakers? Yeah, yeah. Again, I tend to not be that interested in, like, biopics. I don't want to feel like I'm just reading a Wikipedia page when I watch a film. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'd say that's where The Love Me When I'm Dead really succeeds, because it doesn't feel like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, it uses a lot of interviews to sort of create this collage of what mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like, what that filmmaking process was like. I mean, that, that helps, because I'm that's something that I'm already really interested in, is okay. awesome worlds, and, and so, yeah. Okay. I guess I'm, I'm a hypocrite, and that's Morgan Neville as well. But I still felt like it was quite lightweight, really. It didn't, yeah. Yeah. Compared to the Mark Cousins, like, which I think was a lot more academic. So Netflix. So yes, you were asking, are Netflix films films? I feel like I need some punctuation and like air quotes. Yeah. To, to really. <laughs> are they f- f- films? Uh, to really explore. Are they capital M movies? <laughs> I don't know. What do you say, Judge? Um. I mean, having seen Rumour on the big screen, like, that is 100% a movie. I don't know what the hell that's doing on Netflix. That is, it's, it's mad. Like, I, I watched on a giant screen where all of the, like, richest details, you know, you can just really soak them in on these very long shots. 
and it's this gorgeous black and white digital photography where stuff almost could like would just get lost on a laptop on streaming I just I, it's, it's crazy to me that like it's not really going to be seen on a big screen I know that's what everyone said but it's so true I mean maybe they're banking on a lot of people you know have smart TVs they've got big TVs TVs are getting bigger and bigger people are going to watch it in their you know mini cinema in their living room people aren't going to watch this movie like the first half an hour is very slow um, takes a long time for the characters to kind of warm up I just don't see people like watching it without looking at their phones and it's a film that literally needs 100% of your attention because there's so much happening in the background Okay. it's like Jack Tatty level of like dense <laughs> like you know in terms of the background and foreground okay. interaction it's well, just like it's just not going to work I just can't see it playing on someone's phone well I'll let you know <laughs> I'm going to have to watch it on Netflix because yeah. I missed it so I'll it's let like you know a piece of that like watching it on the lap <laughs> Maybe, maybe not. Um, I don't know, you know, like so even sort of the Coen Brothers film had fantastic cinematography, but you could you could still watch that at home, like any Coen Brothers movie. But Roma just, I don't know, so dense. Um, what other the Netflix films are there? What other ones? Well, uh, we saw Dovlatov. That's a Netflix production. Yes, it I is. I really cool that film. <laughs> Sure. I mean, that's a funny thing to say because, yeah, it wasn't great. But, I mean, it's still a film. If you're just saying films are only films that are good, no, you can't really say that. Come I'm on. I'm kidding. I'm ki- you know, <laughs> I, I, I found it interesting that this, this conversation keeps happening about Netflix but not about Amazon films and there's a lot of films in yes. that are Amazon productions like Peter Lou, the Mike Lee film. Mm-hmm. That's 100% a movie. It's got, you know, it, it just is a film. It, it's not the best, but... Uh, some people compare it to like BBC drama. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't quite go that far, but you know it plays on a big screen. Yeah. And no one's kind of criticising Amazon films and the same with the other Netflix ones. Sure. It's interesting. Yeah, people don't don't attack Amazon in that same way. Mm. I guess they're maybe doing the A twenty four approach. They're being selective. Yeah. And just producing. Also choosing to distribute a few things and they also put stuff out in the cinema yeah. before it goes to Amazon so maybe that's like how it's avoided the ire as it were well I mean do you have an Amazon account then? Uh, I use some of the Amazon account but I mean yeah, do you watch do you subscribe to I don't know what the, they call Amazon it. Prime Amazon Prime yeah, I've got I've got it on my telly. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah. I just feel like Netflix is still the giant in right. streaming so yeah, yeah. People might there might be the snobbery by like, oh, it's not really a movie, but who's what who's the one who's pulling in the biggest audience? Who's right. the one that people are going to to watch yeah. the movies? And I think it's so Netflix with no research it's statistics. The, well, but they they obviously don't release much, but they said this week that uh, to all the boys I've loved before was like the most streamed ever yeah. thing, and that's mostly due to like rewatches, which I found quite an interesting thing. I wonder how many. I, th- I feel like them doing Roma and stuff is like a weird vanity project that's like just for their prestige mm-hmm. rather than actually for the benefit of the c- customers in a way other than the fact that like we get to watch Roma like yeah. we get to have that existing mm-hmm. it's still not being presented in like a, the right way okay and they're actively stopping us from having that okay you know so Netflix movies are movies but you know it's screen media yeah. BFI London Screen Media Festival. BFI Screen Media. Yeah. 
BFI London Screen Media Screen Festival, Festival and then we'll have YouTube tutorials and panels yeah. about the nature of that kind of thing, you know. So yeah, I guess we've 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 kind of answered our questions. This it's festival's brought up a lot more questions than it's answered, but that's good. That's I think that's the, the good uh, thing, yeah. That's the swimming through the yeah. pool of cinema. The judgment is there isn't a conclusive judgment, it's uh yeah. it's just Discussing possible cinema continues, <laughs> it carries on. So we'll move on to our award winners, or possible. Um, so, what? So, the award for best performance. Oh. A lot of great performances. There are so many good performances, it's really hard to um, actually to pick one, to be honest. No, I can you. pick one. And there's a lot of different kinds of performances as well. Um, you know, from. Uh, you know, uh, ensemble, like, comedic naturalism of, of Ben Wheatley's uh, Happy New Year Kind of Bursted to uh, something more mannered like uh, Marianne John Baptiste in, um, in in Fabric, which mm-hmm. is still brilliant. Um, or Stephen Yeun, uh, who absolutely kills it in Roma. Yes. There is a lot of different kinds of performances here. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what was your number one? I think it's, it's controversial in girl. You know, you've got Victor Polster, a cisgender teenager playing a trans girl. and But I'm still, yeah, I'm still thinking about it. Even though it is controversial, is that appropriate for that? I think, you know, I'm still thinking about this withdrawn teenager. Because mm-hmm. we see a lot of withdrawn teenagers that don't, that can't quite get the words out. Um, I think, for me, in Moonlight, I struggled with that character because they were just so withdrawn I couldn't connect. Yeah. But with Girl, I was just really, I was, you know, I was really interested in this character. I really wanted the best for her. I was, you know, really engaged with, it's like, you know, just get those words out. Say what you're feeling. <laughs> Do it. So, that was something for me. Cool. What about you? Um, I think I would give it to Regina Hall in Support the Girls, who plays the uh, shift manager of um, a Hooters style like sports bar um, and she just she's like this sort of wants to be the mother and help everyone out but at the expense of her own life the movie's a little bit Kevin Smithy it's like really good but there's this kind of Kevin Smith aspect to it I mean, where that it's sounds like, like a good thing it's what it sort what? of is yeah um, you know I, I'm but I just think Regina Hall, like, I mean, she was one of my best performances of last year in Girls Trip. She, like, killed it in that movie um, in sort of every, not just comedic, but huge emotional range. I think she brings the same thing here in a, in a sort of more um, more serious, but also very, like, human and funny movie. Um, and she just completely pulls that film together. She's great. Oh, cool. I'll have to check that one out. So what's your, your best screenplay? Um, I think I would give best screenplay. Is it? it uh, I think Three Faces had a really interesting construction, but it already won the best screenplay award at Cannes. So you know, I want to just give them. I want to just give it to them again. So I'd give it to Rachel McLean for Make Me Up, um, which we talked about briefly in the last episode. Um, managed to bring together um, art history, feminism, YouTube culture into one very weird sort of pastiche of science fiction and horror and, I, and yeah, it's really didactic but I think that kind of works in its in its favour yeah I mean would you say it's polemical it is polemical it uses a lot of voices of um, of actual people mm-hmm. from Kenneth Clark uh, the art historian to uh, people like Katy Perry 
um, or Oprah, you know, like actually uses their voices and the way that that's sort of collaged is really good, I think. And I, I think that's part of the, sc- the screenplay or the, the writing of the movie. Okay. Uh, what, what's your... Um, I was a big fan of Cam. Um, so that is about a Cam girl and things start to get a bit weird and sort of turns into this horror thriller. Um, and I think, it, so it was written by a former Cam girl. And I think it's just very smart in the way... One, it works really well as a genre movie. It's very tense and suspenseful. It kind of builds and reveals information in interesting ways. Also, just, I think, the way the internet is used and portrayed, I think, is very authentic. And, I mean, I haven't been a cam girl, but I've been obsessed with, you know, your, she's, like, she's very, interested, like, obsessed with her ranking amongst the other cam girls. And, like, this weird, like, quantifying of your value, I think, is really interesting. Mm. And she's very obsessed with cracking the top 50 and the top 10. And, yeah, I think it does a good job like authentic internet experiences. What do you say was your biggest surprise of the festival? So my biggest surprise, I'm going to go with Gwendolyn Christie in In Fabric. Um, so far, I feel like a lot of the characters she's played have been this androgynous characters who really want to prove maybe their masculinity. Mm-hmm. Whereas in In Fabric, she's very funny in it. She plays um, Ariane Jean-Baptiste's son. She plays her son's older girlfriend and she's really funny in it. And I liked her a lot. Um, I yeah, everyone's kind of coming out going crazy about the performance. It wasn't like the the thing that jumped out to me about um, in fabric, but she's like quite funny in it. Yeah, I guess I see what you mean. I mean, her physicality has always been such a big part of her previous roles, mm-hmm. um, so it's nice to see her use it in a different way. Yeah, she has quite good timing. Like yeah, timing. Yeah, uh, my biggest surprise was that the. 3D in Long Day's Journey Into Night kind of works. Um, so this is the the uh, Chinese film noir uh, where the last hour is in 3D. Um, and I'm a massive 3D skeptic. Okay. I don't, I, you know, I'm not, not an Avatar guy, not a, not a Coraline guy, not a Clash of the Titans dude. That kind of period where 3D was, everything was rotoscoped in 3D was really irksome. But I feel like this uh, uh, Gang B has taken more influence from stuff like the Werner Herzog Cave of Forgotten Dreams or, or from Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk and used 3D as a, um, almost like a paint with darkness. So, like it, you know, the, the way that 3D glasses make everything dark. Yeah. He kind of leans into that. So there's a lot of like, walking through caves with just one light and, and the light kind of bounces. Oh, wow. And then it, it's a little bit video gamey at times, but the fact that it's all set at night, this massive single take sequence, um, it does work kind of. It does work well, and it's set within a dream. So that's a dream sequence at the end of this film. Mm-hmm. Is all in three D, and so that dissonance does work. And I kind of like that. This amazing moment where everyone in the cinema, halfway through the film, just puts on their three D glasses, and you can feel everyone shuffling. And you could. Everybody, I was got so excited. <laughs> I, think I, was like, I just have no idea what this is becoming. Yeah. For a film I was already really enjoying. So. Great. Um, yeah, that was that was a surprise, but you know that doesn't mean I want to see everything in three D. Yeah. But if other people want to use it in that kind of yeah, almost like Brechtian way, well, cool. not Brechtian. I don't know what it was. I don't know what that film's about. It, <laughs> it just it was just a real fun experience. Great. Um, what was your biggest disappointment though? Um, I think it's probably Can You Ever Forgive Me. I'm a big Nicole Hansen fan. Um, she didn't direct this one, but she did the screenplay. She co-wrote the screenplay. Mm. Um. And, yeah, maybe it's the lack of Catherine Keener. Maybe it's because she's adapting a book, but this wasn't really 
what I wanted from him at all, honestly, the film. I mean, my expectations are too high, you know. She's exploring different ways of working. Now you've tempered my expectations, it will become my biggest surprise when you get around to it. <laughs> yeah. um, this is a fairly competent sort of biopic. Well, not really a biopic, it, we just followed the character in a short period of her life, from just before she does the forgeries to um, just after she gets caught. And it's, it's fine. Yeah. I wish they'd done a little bit more with it. Um, I think... Yeah, I wish they'd gotten into a little bit more of an experimental approach to it because, like, the nature of writing and how the Israel kind of feels like, you know, she's like, this is some of my best work, these forgeries, these fake letters, and, like, when she's becoming these characters and people think it's it's real. So I wish they'd played with that more, like, where is the real work? Well, you have to watch another writer biopic. <laughs> yeah. So sorry for you. Um... I, I mean, the, all the writer biopics have been disappointing for me, um, including the pre, uh, previously mentioned Doblethob and the and Manto that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, but I think my biggest disappointment, disappointment was actually um, Boots Riley's film, Sorry to Bother You, because okay. uh, that's been so hyped since Sundance. Um, and it is a really enjoyable movie, so this is about uh, Lakeith Stanfield as a call centre worker who uses his quote-unquote white voice. Well, it's a white voice, it's David Cross, <laughs> uh, on voiceover yeah. uh, when Lakeith speaks he uses that to rise through the corporate ranks um, and it's it is funny but it kind of feels it feels like a first movie it's just a load of sketches and ideas put together none of them are really fully explored or fleshed out um, so the film when it takes these very very bizarre turns especially towards the end um, like you, you literally have no idea what, what that could ever be um it, it feels like it's rushing through it's trying to power through these things and that's so it, it ends up feeling like a bit of an unfinished essay like okay. a lot of the ideas just don't fully form and he's trying to make this manifesto about communism or socialism and it kind of doesn't it doesn't feel complete it feels like he sells himself a little bit short um, it's still a really good film it's still a really interesting movie um, but it doesn't totally come together and, and, and for a movie about trade unions I thought it was really um I found it troubling that we were watching it in the Picture House, uh, which in London has had this uh, massive union dispute over the last few years. Mm -hmm. um, I've not heard any response from Bruce White Riley in any interviews about uh, his feelings on its placement in um, there in the festival. And I, and I, yeah. You know. Yes. So the Picture House dispute—they're not recognising the union. They're not paying their workers minimum wage. No, li the living wage. Yeah. And there's, it's been going on for, yeah, a few, as you say, a few years. Um, so Charlie Lyne pulls his film from screening at the Picture House because mm -hmm. he wanted to support the sort of boycott against yeah. going there. It's, it's, it's one of the strikes where uh, so the Picture House have actively, or the members of the union have actively discouraged people from going to Picture House during the festival. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also something that is attainable for the pitch house could pay their staff that much because like Curzon do ICA does like yeah. it's not pitch house is the biggest one of those chains so it's not really it's not an unreasonable request yeah. also campaigning for like maternity paternity leave sick pay and these staff are on zero hours contracts as well so it's, it is like it's, it's more than just staff wanting a pay rate you know it, yeah. there's a, there is it would be achievable so just made me feel a little bit uncomfortable and you know yeah. we're all there we're all advertising the pitch house by like queuing up outside it yeah. with these massive massive long keys to see these movies so I don't know uh, I just 
sorry to bother you. I guess maybe it's, it's good to sorry to bother you. Maybe think about those those things a lot. Yeah. You know, and that's made me think about the movie. But yeah, to what end? To what end, Bruce Riley? Travelling. Did you watch Peter Lewitt? The, the child. I did, yeah. Another film that made me think about all those things. Okay. Um, yeah. Peter Lee's not... Another disappointment in... As much as Mike Lee is, like, one of the best living filmmakers. But that film is kind of... Uh, not necessarily super well-developed characters, but... Okay. Um, but, yeah, obviously that has a very pertinent uh, modern context. I think a lot of people haven't liked it. No, you, did you see it? I didn't see Peter Lee, no. So the, the way a lot of it's organised is the um, the working class people, the plebs, um, I don't they call them plebs in the movie, but you know, the, the, the lower class people are all played very straight, Mike Lee style, very serious. Uh, and then the aristocracy, aristocracy in the film is all just like Blackadder level uh, you know they're just mad and they have these ridiculous voices okay. and kind of I felt like it was reaching for something that, the, that doesn't quite come together in the movie that dissonance but it's there mm. they just seem to paint it as a bit of an easy target yeah you got you got to see it I think, okay. just to see how it works for you I, th- I think it hasn't worked for most people I liked it more than most people that I've spoken to actually and the actual massacre is quite poorly handled. There's even a bit at the end where uh, they're walking across the, the battlefield and someone says, this was truly <laughs> Peter Lee. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. It's fun. Um, so what was your... Um, did, you, did you find a debut film that, or a debut that, that stood out to you? What was the best debut? Well, i got to give it to the triple threat, Jim Cummings in Thunder Road. Of course. Written, directing and starring. And that film was, was, yeah, it was wonderful. It was great. It won me over and I was, I was very moved by the end. And I want to watch it again. It's very funny. Very sad. It's got, it's got, got a lot going on. I'm proud of Jim. <laughs> proud of Jim. I, I don't know what else I'll do, from, though. From Reddit to LFF. Yeah. You made it. Yeah, I don't know what I'll bring next. I'm nervous. Is he going to get scooped up? Marvel. Yeah, Marvel movie. <laughs> yep. So we'll see. God, he is totally their target as well, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he'll do like Deadpool 3. Let's not, let's not do that. He's going to make hope... a load more great indie movies. He's going to be a David Lowry. He did Pete's Dragon. Yes, but he also... Okay, he's not going to be a David Lowry. <laughs> But we'll see. Yeah. Mm. I'm excited by Thunder Road. <laughs> but I hope this doesn't come back to bite me. Yeah, people are going to use this as against you. Well, I stand it's by Thunder it. Thunder Road, I stand by it. You know, I embrace whatever comes with it. Embrace <laughs> <laughs> the comings. Uh, um, what's your favourite debut? So, my best... Um, Sorry, my favourite debut of the festival was Helena Howard in Madeline's Madeline. She's a first-time actor um, in this film by Rachel Drecker, which is about um, a uh, girl with mental illness who uh, joins a, a theatre company to kind of work through, also to kind of get, you know, kind of. She joins a the theatre company, and the director um, starts to base the play that they're working on more and more on her actual life, mm-hmm. um, and her relationship with her mother that's very fraught. And, uh, Helen Howard is just really terrific in this movie, which is, you know, intensely, um, 
the, the point of view is intensely put inside her, her head, her kind of weird um, perspectives and hallucinations, um, and she grapples the whole thing with this uh, ease that switches between naturalism and super theatricality. Ooh. It's a really, really good performance from like a 16 year old girl. I appreciate that um, range. That's yeah. Cool. Uh, I, yeah, I haven't seen this one either. So. It's, you know, it, it, it requires both because it goes inside and outside of her head. And, on and off stage as well so there's a lot of her acting like a cat for a little bit being herself this really fraught relationship with her mother at one point she plays her mother she, while her mom's like watching her and she like mimics her and it's like a dead on impression of wow. uh, Miranda July who plays the mum it's a really really good performance um maybe we should have given that best performance no, that's the thing about it but it's best debut it's the best, best debut best debut thank you um, so we've got one award left. It's the big one. It's only been it's waiting for. It's the big for. one. It's best pet. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of pets at Elephant this year. Not quite a few. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, let's talk through some of the pets yeah. before we <laughs> before we whittle really it down. Um, so in the favourite, Queen Anne, played by Lever Coleman, had 17 rabbits. Uh, they're very cute. They're very integral as well, I think, to the, the relationship between Olivia Coleman and her favourites. <laughs> So there's some cute bunnies. Are they all uh, people that couldn't find a life partner within 40 days? That's a lobster reference. Thank you. Um, I don't know. That could be uh, your head cannon if you like. <laughs> the Lanthem universe. The universe. The Lanthiverse. Yeah, the Lanthiverse. Yeah. Um, anyway. <laughs> uh, so the aforementioned Olivia the dog in Widows. Yeah, that was incredible. That's I a good dog. Yeah. When we first saw her, an all white Westie, um, I was like, oh, that's a cute dog. But then I didn't think it would be so important. Integral to the plot. Yeah. Yeah. Very well used dog. Well done, Steve McQueen. Good yeah. dog acting by the dog. Um, yeah. A good, a good dog movie. <laughs> uh, another good dog movie was Roma. Uh, Alfonso Cuaron's film uh, which has a, a similarly integral dog uh, the f- literally first shot of the film is uh, about five minutes long and it's of, and it's of uh, dog shit getting washed away wow. because in the house that it's all set in um, the dog just shits like all over the yard and in the um, driveway so there's things where the car drives over dog shit the dog jumps up and down, yaps at everyone that walks past. It's a really lively dog. It's very funny. Corn uses it to like ease the tension in a not too cheesy way because it just seems like a dog like doing its yeah. thing, and that film's so natural anyway. It's a good dog. It's a good boy. <laughs> <laughs> Can you ever forgive me? That was a very cute kitten, and seeing a kitten in IMAX was quite a transcendent experience because it's so small. But seeing it so big, <laughs> it was. It, I think I gasped a little bit. That's amazing, like a kitten was 4,000 times your size. That's, yeah. I think, isn't it? It was cool. Madness. <laughs> um, what were what some other pets? What? Um, so, in The Queen of Fear. So, this film was described as uh, Almond of Our Meat's uh, opening night, which almost ruined that movie for me. Again, BFI, you know, white, white. That movie wasn't too bad, but like, I just had in my head opening night as if that was what the film was going for. Mm-hmm. And I don't really think it even was, but it just. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen that, and I enjoyed that. So, um, it's written, directed, and starring Valeria Bertocelli. So, yeah, this film, it's an Argentinian film about an actress. I hadn't seen Opening Night, and so I didn't have that expectation in my head, and it 
worked for me is this woman who's just like possessed by anxiety. Um, I think it worked pretty well. And to kind of ease her anxiety, she's got this really beautiful big white dog. Um, but, you know, it takes care of her. Yeah. So it, it barks does. a lot. It's yeah. a big barker, yeah. Probably best barking, loudest barking. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know about them. I, mean, I, feel, I feel like they wanted to describe it as being like the headless women by Lucretia Martel, but they were like, that's another Argentinian one, so they said the film that that's influenced by, which is opening night. Okay. I think Lucretia Martel's connected to this film, but I can't remember right. how. They're both Argentinian? No, she, I think she's worked with one of the people. Okay, there. that would make sense. Uh, any other pets? Um, so, um, in Burning, we had Boy All the Cats. Of course. Yeah, another integral animal to the plot of that film. Both times these sort of uh, the, the 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 core sort of truth of of, um, of a person, but you know, both uh, widows and burning are kind of about like who who is what is the truth of a person's like inner nature, and. Um, if Widows is really about that. Widows is like I'm, I'm reaching, but, but <laughs> burning is burning burns of that question. Um, and, and the animal, but the animals, uh, a twist is pivots on those animals both sides, I would say. Okay. It does. Yeah, I just feel like we're getting into spoiler territory. That's what I'm saying. That's literally what I'm saying. Yeah. I guess, um, yeah, that's kind of that trope that animals, mm, like, you know, you animal can. Animal doesn't lie. Animal doesn't lie, animals can really see the true nature mm. of a person. Yeah. And you, you know, if your dog likes the guy, he's a good guy, kind of thing. And yeah. Animals will. I'm truth. fed up of animals being misrepresented in that way. You, you know, it's with the magical animal. <laughs> <laughs> it shows the person the way. Yeah. I guess what is, what is that about animals? I guess the sense that they, they run on instinct. Yeah. And that kind of sense, humans have got too much intellect getting in the way of their instinct. Or emotion. Okay, yeah. Maybe. We should be cold, like the dog, <laughs> like the puppy. But they're warm. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, they are. They're warm so to their is that all? No, I've got to give a shout out for the pictures in Timbad, the horror film. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say if they're quite pets, but they definitely have an interesting relationship they with stay the, in the house. humans yes. of, the, of the film. So that's Yeah. Bad. So in Timbad, which is this uh, Indian movie by... Rahi Anulbave and Adesh Prasad. Uh, which is kind of this like weird fable um, about greed. Uh, there's a... There's a recurring theme is that uh, the main character has to climb into a hole in his house which definitely puckers like an anus and yeah. <laughs> uh, there's no getting around it it's it's they're going in climb into an anus yeah and there's these like monsters in there some really good practical effects i like these creatures a lot they, they were cgi weren't they were they i remember i thought i was like oh good cgi for, th- is it the like, first creature Oh, that first creature is. That's not quite the same. That's a, this is a bit where a, where a house grows out of a... A tree grows out of a person. And that person... I forgot about that whole part. I really struggle like to, yeah, to identify practical and CGI effects. I'm just going to say good effects. <laughs> good bad. effects all around. Yeah, good effects. best effects. Best effects. Bad. Good creatures. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was some bad CGI smoke in uh, Beale Street earlier. Oh, really? Yeah, I was like, just smoke a cigarette. It's obviously <laughs> smoke a cigarette. I won't spoil who. Who smokes a cigarette? But... Um, but if you had to pick a best pet, if I had to pick one, I mean that that bloody that bloody dog in Roma is <laughs> is very funny. He really does ease the tension out. Of, okay. Um, yeah, and he's a constant. It's a film about constants. 
and I, that is a constant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and in fact, if we're talking of best film, Roma was until yesterday unbeatably my number one film at the festival. I, I really didn't think I'd see anything on that magisterial scale. I was really knocked out by Roma, like speechless afterwards. Um, it's, it is brilliant. Um, <laughs> but yesterday I saw Burning, uh, Lee Chang Dong's movie based on a Murakami short story with Stephen Yeun, and it is just one of the best thrillers in a long time. It's Hitchcockian, totally unexpected. Just yeah, it's just it just bangs. It's yeah, I was really I just felt like so excited watching it and like afterwards there hasn't been another film I've literally come out and like punching myself <laughs> and like hitting the walls and so and I couldn't stop thinking about it and talking about it and teasing out all these little um things that are in that film and the you know, the, the stuff about voyeurism or or uh, uh jealousy, yuppiedom and and how that ties into Korean national identity and Korea kind of changing face and, and what career is it just was yeah knocked knocked the fuck out by burning what's your film the festival um I think so my film the festival is probably going to have to be in fabric so that is the Peter Strickland film uh, I think we, yeah we talked about it a little bit um, in the last episode Breach. yeah and it's still yeah still still up there for me um I think it's influenced by sort of Jallo and genre movies, and I really appreciated the the fact that it was so stylized. I feel like with a lot of films at this festival, they were trying, they were striving for realism, and then seeing this was like a breath of fresh air for that. And I was, yeah, I was really loved it. I loved the way it played with its themes, and yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. So we're out. Yeah, that was London Film Festival. That was it. It feels like I've been here for about four years. But it's been it's been good. Mm-hmm. It's been pretty good. Did you have a good festival? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I I had a good time. You had a little um, detour though. I did. Yes, I took a few days out to go to the Bristol Radical Film Festival, and that was really fun. I enjoyed that a lot. It was yeah. Hi, um, so I'm just going to interrupt here to um, give a bit of context to the Bristol Radical Film Festival because I don't think I explained it very well um, when we were recording earlier. Um, So the festival um, is is about radical films, whether that's uh, political films or activist films or films that are sort of a bit experimental in their form, um, sort of aesthetically radical. Um, and unlike the, film, the London Film Festival, um, which has got many, many screens and many, many things going on at once, this is just the Radical Film Festival takes place in one location with one screen and a programme that takes place over a weekend. Um, it includes archive films or contemporary films, um, and the films are often accompanied with a Q&A. Um, with someone connected to the film or connected to the issues raised in the films. For example, uh, we watched Pressure, which is the first British feature film to be directed by a black filmmaker. So that was directed by Horace Ove, released in 1976, um, exploring the Windrush generation and the children of the Windrush generation and their sort of their different experiences of being black at that time um, in Britain. And uh, we had a Q&A with a woman who was part of, you know, the radical things going on at the time. Um, and there's also an international short film competition um, selection. So you get to see a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff there. And it's definitely a contra- contrast. So that's what we ended up talking about uh, in the rest of this episode.
Uh, I will include a link to the Radical Film Festival website in our show notes on WordPress so you can explore the programme or the festival a little bit more if you're, you're interested. So how, how did that? How, how was that going from a you know gigantic international festival like LFF to Bristol Radical Film Festival? Yeah, going between the two festivals, it was interesting. It was interesting to see like what is valued when you're watching these films. Mm-hmm. Um, with London Film Festival, it's apart from the treasure strategy, it's all new movies, and there is this intensity or this priority on seeing something first. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Bristol Radical Film Festival, it's some more recent movies, but also a lot of retrospectives and the value is not on seeing it first, the value is just seeing the film. And there's always a QA and a uh, with filmmakers involved with the films or people who are connected with the content, um, which, which is interesting. That helped me. Like, you know, I enjoyed that part of the festival. Um, we saw... Uh, there was a screening of Ken Loach's early film, The Big Flame, which was uh, based on the Liverpool dot work strikes in the 60s. And that was a docudrama that was really interesting, and it, you know, it inspired quite a lot of lively debate about unions, about what, how unions work today, and you know, that was fun. Um, it's interesting your point about this like priority of like seeing things first, because I I came into LFF feeling like I wanted you know there's a, you know, stuff like. Um, Bill Street is going to be out soon enough or Widows are going to be out soon enough so like, there's no real need to see them that early unless you're covering them somewhere so why not take a chance on like something that you'll never see again but I found that after a while I was so washed down by seeing films like Doublet of that uh, just or, or Manto that just you know you're just kind of gritting your teeth and like peeling your fingernails off like trying to sit through them that by the end by like this week, I was really just like not taking any chances and going for stuff that I knew would be reliable. Mm-hmm. Like, because there's something horrible about feeling like oh, I could actually be watching someone else at this time. At this time, like I'm in here, but um, and and I guess how it links to Radical Film Festival is like because you're in that different space, you can see something that might have different values, and you don't, and it doesn't put that pressure on to prioritise certain things. Yeah, it's interesting how the films are valued differently and how you engage with them changes in the different contexts of each festival. And on that note, <laughs> follow us on uh, Twitter and Instagram <laughs> at JudgeMoviePod. Yep, um, and if you head to judgemoviepod.wordpress.com uh, you'll get the full show notes with links, helpful links to the programme at BFI Film Festival. Um, and are you going to be publishing a list on Letterboxd of your, your LFF ranked? Um, or is that? I'll definitely put a list of everything that I saw, yeah. if not ranked. Yeah, you can see our stats on Letterboxd. There you go. Um, I'm com slash Izumi. That's either UMI. I might have a list. I probably will. I don't know. Take I'm, I'm Pemulus0. P-M-U-L-I-S-0. It's an infinite chess reference. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we'll see you there. Goodbye.